Hello, I'm Rupert Soskin. And I'm Michael Bott. Welcome, or should I say, welcome back to the Prehistory Guys <laughs> podcast. Yeah, this being the first in uh, 2021. Yeah. And this month, we're looking into discoveries from Asia to the Mediterranean, Canada to Israel, and discussing some of the recent research into the long-distance marine travel of our ancient ancestors. Not to mention pushing back a boundary. What is doing the pushing back the boundary, I wonder, this uh, this month? Uh, naming <laughs> our first stone head of the month for 2021 and rounding off the show with something on the whimsical side of archaeology. So let's get going. First things first, what is it that is doing the heavy lifting in archaeology and pushing back a boundary this month of February, Rupert? <laughs> well, do you know what? This is one of those pieces of research where it's not really a surprise. The exciting thing is when concrete evidence is found to confirm the, the thoughts and theories, really. Uh, and this is archaeologist uh, Philip Stockhammer from the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich and a team of researchers have been using a fairly new technique called paleoproteomics. Well done. That, yeah, <laughs> uh, that analyses food particles which have been preserved in ancient materials, and most notably in dental tartar or calculus. Now, it does make you wonder what people's breath smelled like thousands of years ago, but hey, thank goodness for poor dental hygiene. <laughs> yes, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> But basically, as we know, over time the bacteria in our mouths builds up and hardens around our teeth. As we know. So, so without the modern <laughs> habits of regular brushing, food particles would become coated and preserved within the calculus, uh, okay. a little bit, a little bit like a, a, a pearl forming. In an oyster, really. A little bit well, that's a nice way of putting it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. if only ours came out the same way. That's what, yeah, um, what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what makes this so significant is that their findings have revealed that various food substances were traded over long distances far earlier than previously thought. Right. Now... The researchers have worked with the remains of 16 individuals from two sites. There's Megiddo, otherwise known as Armageddon. What? Uh, in, what? The in, Armageddon? The Armageddon, the yes, Ar yes. Oh, my yes. goodness. Pe yeah, I know. People don't talk about it very much, do they? It's called no, Megiddo no. these days. Maybe, maybe we should. Maybe we should talk <laughs> more about Armageddon. <laughs> uh, that's in northern Israel. And <laughs> okay. the other site uh, is Tel Irani, which is about 100 miles to the south. And they have found the earliest evidence for turmeric, soy, and bananas, bananas outside of, of South and East Asia. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. I, I have to admit that before reading this research, I actually had no idea that bananas originated in Asia anyway. But it Where have seems, you been? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just had them as a you know plantain in Africa. Yeah, and yeah, sure, you, but sure. apparently. Asia? They were domesticated in Southeast Asia around 7,000 years ago in places like Malaysia and the Philippines. And they didn't reach Africa until about 4,000 years later. I had no idea. That's crazy. Um, and the Americas... 7,000 uh, years ago? That. They were being cultivated yes. 7,000... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is what the research says. Okay. Um, 
Uh, but anyway, uh, that's it in a nutshell. Long-distance trade in food produce from Asia to the Mediterranean going back 3,700 years. But you have to you have to wonder about the bananas, don't you, over that kind of distance? I mean, were they dried, ban- <laughs> dried bananas? <laughs> you couldn't walk, you know, thousands of miles with fresh bananas. They would be not in a good state. Yeah, it's very true. It's, it's very true. Um, yeah, were they dried? Uh, in fact, uh, Philip Stockhammer himself has commented on that, and he suggested that another possible explanation uh, for the bananas could be that individuals had spent some time living in Asia, yeah. where they ate them, and the proteins got, uh, or the you know the uh, remains got embedded in their teeth there before they walked all the way back to the Middle East with their dirty teeth. You know, um, we, well, they just need to test more people for, uh, to get a clearer idea on that, I suppose. I suppose so. seems more likely, in a way. I, I'm, I'm having a hard time envisaging the, the rapid transit of bananas in time. Well, you, <laughs> well, you can buy dried bananas today, can't you? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so that that in itself wouldn't uh, wouldn't surprise me particularly. I mean, even now when you look at um, the sorts of dried fruits that you can get in the Middle East, which are unbelievably sweet and sticky, uh, you know. Yeah. So maybe that's uh, a legacy from from that. But I don't know. Is it more likely that people were walking backwards and forwards from uh, uh, from the Middle East to? Eastern Asia than, than oh, it was look, a trade. Op- opened know. up a whole new area. You know, slightly off yeah. the wall area for a prehistory guys pushing back the boundaries there. <laughs> Bananas. <Yes. laughs> Were they travelling thousands of miles? Yes. Can uh, open worms back in everywhere. the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Uh, but I think we can uh, we'll, we'll leave the bananas alone for the moment and um, mm. uh, move on to a bit of news. A bit of news. Okay. Bit so, of news. first up today in the news is uh, well, I'm taking this over to Northwest Canada, mm. to the islands off the coast of British Columbia. A team of researchers working on finding the roots of Native Americans extracted DNA from the teeth of four individuals, two from Lucy Island, one 6,000 years old, the other 5,500 years old, and two skeletons from nearby Dodge Island, one 5,000 years old and the other 2,500 years old. Now, previous findings have shown that 95% of indigenous peoples are descended from six women who lived about 20,000 years ago. It's amazing, isn't well, it? Well, sure enough, they found that there was indeed a genetic link between the 5,500-year-old woman from Lucy Island and the 2,500-year-old female from Dodge Island. These families haven't moved in thousands of years. Okay. But what makes this project so surprising is that the researchers were using DNA samples from 60 modern-day individuals from three different indigenous tribes, and they found that these distant ancestors have an exact match with one living woman from the Simchin tribe, still in the neighbourhood after 200 generations. How about that? It's just incredible, isn't it? That the the people have been living in the same spot. 
for thousands upon thousands of years. Again, we've probably commented on it in the, in the past, haven't we, that people don't move all that much, but this is it's just an astonishing discovery. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, is it just a lucky thing? Is it is it just applicable to this one area, or do you think the same kind of studies could be done elsewhere? The you fact know, that I, they're islands, you know, and there's the, you know, it, yeah. they're le- less likely to have moved about if you look at the, you know, that that those islands off the yeah. uh, west coast of Canada there. But even so, even so. It's just, I, I think whether it's a surprise or not, it's the fact that you have a tangible link right the way back through history. Mm. Mm. Being able to say it. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fantastic story. Anyway, well, I'm taking us over to Israel for this next piece. Not now, back to Armageddon, I hope. Not back to Armageddon, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear. Now, surprisingly, the findings have only recently been published, despite the fact that the actual discovery was made about ten years ago. Uh, this is from the Bronze Age site of Bethsaida, uh, just to the north of the Sea of Galilee, where excavations have been going on for over 30 years, actually. Uh, the discovery we're looking at here is it's just beautiful, really, but it's desperately sad. Uh, about 3,000 years old, yeah. and it's a very young couple. Uh, the male died in his late teens. The female probably around 12 or 13, so they're very young. Now, there are no signs of trauma, so there's no clue as to what actually killed them. But the thing that makes this burial so rare is that they've been laid cuddled close together on their sides. Mm. He's behind her with his arm laid across her as if holding on to her. Okay. Uh, There are no grave goods at all. So, again, there's no clue as to status. But clearly the people who buried them uh, wanted them laid to rest in each other's arms, which, you know, you can only imagine the sadness of the the ceremony. Um, But uh, the the archaeologists uh, uh, want to run DNA tests to see if they can learn anything from that. So if any further news comes from the research, we will, of course, report back as soon as we can. Do you know what? A, a thought just occurred to me uh, about that. Is that anybody, you know, three, four thousand years in the future, looking back to, to now, will never get, as far as I know, certainly from, you know, modern culture, will never get this kind of story enacted, you know, in Isn't a, that in a true? burial. Yeah. Isn't that true? Yeah. When you when you think of some of the uh, the burials we've reported on in the last couple of years, where whole families have been uh, buried together. I mean, okay, you do get mausoleums, um, but uh, but as you say, you've got a mausoleum that's got, you know, it, it might have a dozen coffins in it, but everybody yeah. distinctly, you know, discreetly um, placed individually. There's no uh, no storytelling, as you say. That yeah, that's a that's a very good point. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Point. Yeah, this this kind of storytelling in 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 burial is it's it's not mm. usual, but it is kind of unique, and we seem to be coming across mm. it. And do you know what? I'm just about to take us somewhere else where this is happening again. You know, it'll it'll this this next one mm. will elicit reactions, mm. emotions. You know, we'll start to start building a story out of what we've got here. 
because I'm taking us uh, to central France to a, another remarkable burial. This is another example of fantastic archaeology only coming to light because of construction work. In this mm -hmm. case, it's the huge development project at Clermont Ferrand Airport in central France. The whole area of excavation covers only over seven acres, with building ranging from late Bronze Age through to the Middle Ages. But the particular burial we're looking at here is about 2,000 years old in Roman Gaul. I say we're straying into history, the world of history almost, here. Yeah. Almost, almost. <laughs> Nevertheless, we'll plough on because um, <laughs> uh, this is the burial of a baby with a pet puppy. Just oh How do we know it was a pet? Well, the puppy was buried at the foot of the baby's coffin wearing a decorated bronze collar complete with a bell. Would you mm. believe it? And this is, this is highly, clearly a, a high-status burial as the child was buried with an absolute wealth of grave goods including terracotta vases, glass pots which they think might have held oils or medicines, half a pig... And That's a, a lot for a baby. <laughs> exactly. Not only that, but a couple of headless chickens, would you believe? So not mm. quite as cute <laughs> as, <laughs> uh, as mm. you may have been thinking when I mentioned the puppy. Anyway, the researchers <laughs> are going to run tests on the glass pots to see what they actually contain. So once again, it's a watch this space and... Uh, We'll bring you more news when we have any. <laughs> Do you know the the, the, yeah. the only thing that uh, that I, I I wince a little bit with this one is, um, did they did they kill the puppy to bury it with the baby? Oh, shut up! I did, I know. knew I I was sort of kind of going there in my head. Yeah, let's just, keep our uh, fingers crossed, folks. But yeah. like I say, not quite as cute as. <laughs> No, <laughs> probably yeah, well. in the first place. Yeah, well. well, that, folks, but, wraps up the news for today. Yes, um, forgive us chuckling, though. You know, that's it, it, the whole thing is sad, really, isn't it? But it's, it's desperately unique, sad, and we've, we, you know, but mm. we've never come across that kind of thing before. Sorry, Rupert. Mm. Yes, you were trying to wind us up and segue us yes, on I, to the next section. Yes, indeed, indeed. We're uh, we're we're romping into our main theme. Romping, you like romping. You mentioned you use that like word romping. Yeah. Romping, anyway. Yeah, okay, well let's let's let us romp. Let us romp on <laughs> to uh, um, the next bit. So so onward onward into the main body of the program, which yes. we've uh, decided what we're looking at uh, this month. It was sort of decided on the title of Maritime Travel in Prehistory. Would that yeah. about sum it up? That sums it up rather beautifully, actually. And, yeah, uh, which <laughs> more fool us, because I think we're opening a bit of a can of worms here. Yeah, it is yet another can of worms, it's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, it, well, it has to be said that the reason that we're talking about this is because of the recent research that's been published about the Ryukyu, I hope that's how you pronounce it, the Ryukyu Islands of Japan. Um, and uh, and so in a nutshell, really, so the reason that we decided to talk about this is because uh, the Ryukyu Islands of Japan have been inhabited for, I don't remember how long, but it's something like 30,000 years, 35,000 years. At least, yeah. Um, 
and um, it was always thought that people had uh, had got there by accident, been dr- washed there in a storm or you know whatever. And it was some very recent research that showed that actually that can't have happened, and they have to have uh, arrived there deliberately. They set sail, if sail is the right uh, word to use there. They uh, they embarked on a journey to go there deliberately, and uh, that's major because you know they're islands that are not visible from the mainland, which means whether it was the thing of you know seeing birds flying somewhere or looking at weather patterns, what have you, they knew there was land out to sea, and um, so uh, they went out there. Now you start looking at maritime travel going a long way back in time. And it's unbelievable uh, what uh, what we know. And also unbelievable the unanswered questions that mm. we have when you really start to look at uh, what uh, recent DNA studies are telling us about what people came from where and when. And mm. then, then the, you get a big, huge, big question mark about, well, basically, how? Yeah. So these, you know, it's probably DNA studies that are largely telling us we need to look at this because this is slightly problematic. Um, So Mm. it's not only, I mean, I know that study uh, kicked us off looking at this, but also there's the recent studies about Polynesian uh, DNA that shows that there were interactions between uh, Polynesians and... um, the native um, Americans from Colombia. Yes. Um, now, yeah. it, it, the, the interesting thing about that in particular is that the, the DNA studies have shown that that's a, that's a late interaction. That doesn't mean to say that it didn't yeah, happen yeah, earlier, yeah. but the, the, the genetics is only uh, illustrating the fact that people were interbreeding within history, pre-Columbian, but mm. um, but not going too far back in time. But what's so important about that is that it does show categorically that people were travelling huge distances in, uh, in what we can only really presume were primitive crafts. Mm. Um, uh, you see, the... the Again, the Polynesians, you think when, when James Cook went to Australia and uh, on all those voyages and when they were interacting with the Polynesians uh, on those journeys and, uh, and they wrote about uh, the Polynesians, uh, they would set out to sea, they would travel enormous distances in very big canoes. Sometimes they would lash the canoes together so that they could uh, put, you know, I, I think the biggest recorded event, if you like, was there was something, there was hundreds of people that were travelling together in canoes that were lashed together. Oh, amazing, yeah. Um, so th- the thing is that if you're talking about, uh, a, a, you know, a, technologically speaking, so you've got a primitive people who are completely unfazed by the notion of travelling long distances at mm. sea in canoes. And you think, well, why would that be any different from anything that happened potentially in distant 
prehistory. There's yeah. n no reason. Um, and although academically, you know, there's, you know, for a long time, there's been this thing of man can't have done this and can't have done that. But the very fact that the Polynesian islands are populated when mm. they're a couple of thousand miles away from anywhere at all shows, well, clearly they did. And the, the same thing goes for another um, study that we looked at, which, is, again, is uh, recent, but it tells a similar story about people setting out over water where they can't see the sea, their destination before they set out. So say mm. more, a bit more about that. We're talking about the uh, Caribbean. Talking about the Caribbean. It, it, this, is, this is a lovely thing when, when you know, um, conventional wisdom is completely overturned that it was always thought that... Uh, so from the, uh, the east coast of, uh, of South America that, uh, that you have Trinidad and Tobago and from there you go up through the, the Caribbean islands. And so it was always presumed, quite sensibly really, that Trinidad and Tobago was populated first and that the northern islands uh, was just a gradual progression. But it's only with recent archaeological studies that they've actually found that it's the other way around. That it's it's the northern islands that are completely invisible from the mainland are actually the ones with the earliest settlements. Yeah, yeah. Um, now that's astonishing, really. Yeah. And again, we've got to reiterate that um, the Polynesian uh, studies points to contact round about. Uh, 1200 AD. Mm. So what are we talking about here with the, the Caribbean? So Trinidad, 7,000 years ago. Oh, oh, uh, right, OK. It was um, all that time ago. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and in the northern Caribbean, yeah. uh, you've got the larger islands of the Greater Antilles, so Cuba, Puerto Rico and Hispaniola, between 6,000 and 5,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And if you come down to the closer islands in the northern Lesser Antilles, so you've got uh, Antigua, Barbuda around there, so that's two and a half thousand years ago. Yeah, I didn't mean for us to get bogged down in th this sort of dating thing, because in a way the dating is irrelevant. What we're trying to point <laughs> out <laughs> is yeah. this impetus for human beings to set out across open waters where they can't see the other side. Yes. And uh, two instances that where it is proven that that's what they did. Yeah. It's, this is not accidental travel, this is deliberate travel. Mm. And I think that speaks to the whole um, issue of um, uh, sea travel in prehistory because there are certain instances where we have no evidence of boats whatsoever. In fact, something we'll talk about a little bit later on is, and that is the scarcity of actual physical evidence of seafaring itself. There are no boats. Mm. There are there, There's a handful, literally a handful mm. of, of boats uh, spanning from 10,000 years ago. Mm. When, when we know people were, we just know people were, you know, in later times, Neolithic, and, uh, and the Bronze Age were just streaming up and down the Atlantic seaboard and uh, in and but out. But we shouldn't be surprised, should we? We shouldn't you know, be surprised I mean, why, why, would a lump, why would a lump of wood no, survive the, the, at all? The, the 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 lump that we've chosen to t bite off and chew on is how people got to islands mm. 
uh, that you know became inhabited when um, there was still sea there. Mm. We're not talking about a time when um, land was joined, so people could just walk across an isthmus somewhere. Mm. There are definitely places where people could only have gotten inhabited that place if they'd crossed the sea. Mm. And uh, that is the thing. How far back can we press this thing of people s- deliberately setting out across the sea? Nearly a million years. <laughs> this is the crazy thing, because we've got to go right back, right, mm. right back to Florus in, yeah. the, uh, in the Philipp- Philippines, isn't it? Indonesian islands. Indonesian yeah, so north of Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, where we get uh, Homo Florensi. Yes, that one. Oh, I Florensis. Florensis, the, yeah. the so-called hobbit, yeah. uh, which some people are saying are descended from uh, an influx of uh, Homo erectus around about the million year mm. uh, period uh, ago. Mm. Now, the question is, were Homo erectus deliberately setting out to sail to foreign lands? It puts a whole completely different complexion on mm. how we view um, mm. You know, those really prehistoric uh, uh, strands of ancestry. Yes, I mean the, the archaeology is pretty incontrovertible there. That uh, that uh, <laughs> that hominids, hominins, um, had uh, had reached there. Uh, I think is it nine hundred and eighty? Yeah, thousand like. years. It's, you know, it's, it's nearly a million years. Um. Uh, you know, wh- where do you go with that? You know, the fact is, it's thirty kilometers. It's twenty or thirty kilometers by sea. Hmm. Um, is the distance that they would have had to have travelled then? I don't know what it is today, but but that's um, what it's been calculated. They would have had to have travelled then. Um, and I mean, knowing what we know, um, which you know, which okay, is not very much. But knowing what we know about a relatively primitive man a million years ago you know so well, they're, they've got pretty crude tools with mm. which they're making dugout canoes we have to assume there's been no crafts uh, found going back that time and there's nowhere a piece of wood's going to last a million years in the fossil record in the archaeological record well there are some archaeologists who will adhere to the idea that they accidentally got on a raft of reed and were floated off in a storm across Mm. the sea. I Mm. just don't buy that at all. Because you've got to have a number of people to have a survivable population. Mm. You're not going to get a a whole bunch of of, uh, individuals who would, if you landed them on on a foreign shore would be survivable, that would be able to uh, reproduce and um, produce a, a surviving community. That's what I would have It trying must to have say. been a very, very big, very, very big raft Reed, of ra- <laughs> Accidental yes. raft of reeds. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, this simple question about maritime travel in prehistory just opens up all these things. Because if mm. you're going to travel also... If you're going to travel with co-travellers and get into a boat and sail to a place you can't uh, see, mm. um, the presumption is that these people have got to be able to speak to each other, in which case we must bestow Homo erectus with the gift of language. Yeah, indeed. 
Um, what more can we say? <laughs> well, do you know, I mean, that in itself is an interesting point, isn't it? Because why, um, why would we presume that they didn't? Well, um, true, but it, um, it's just a sort of wake-up thing mm. about, oh, my perception of these people uh, is most likely wrong then. The image, you know, much like the Neanderthals. I, I, I mm. don't want to say much more about, you know, whether or not Homo erectus had language because there is so much more to cover in our small time allotted to us here because mm. I've just mentioned Neanderthals and guess what? There's evidence of Neanderthals and Crete and the Mediterranean islands mm. and the Mediterranean islands to the time where the tools that have been found there have been dated back to, they were still islands. Yes, the sea level was lower, but it was still sea, mm. still needed uh, to be traversed. And no, I don't mm. think, as some have suggested, they were just marvellous swimmers. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I think it, it's it's intriguing, really. It says a lot about us today. Yeah, yeah. Um, people's... Um, what people imagine a primitive peoples to have been like. But if, if you think, you know, what we found in uh, just in the last few years about the fact that, you know, we all have Neanderthal DNA in us, unless you come from uh, South Africa. And within that, we've got uh, uh, smatterings of Denisovan. We know that Denisovans and Neanderthals were into breeding, um, that the fact that these are different uh, subspecies of Homo, you know, whatever they may be, you know, clearly they're not going to have been looking at each other and seeing that they're oh, different species. They're not at all. Mm -hmm. you know, so there's no reason they wouldn't have been uh, interrelating. And if they're interrelating all the time, then why would they not have been potentially travelling together as well? They wouldn't have perceived each other as different. Mm. So... Travelling, though, you know, I mean, there's, well, we had Neanderthals, we were, we were talking only some months ago in another programme, we were talking about the uh, Neanderthal uh, stuff that they'd found on Gibraltar. Correct. And so, yeah, you know, we, we as, uh, you know, homo whatever, you know, we have, uh, mm. we've never been, a f well, we've been very adventurous, <clears throat> haven't we? So I'm going to return to the Ryoko Islands because we didn't really, Ryoko Islands, be, be, because we didn't really explain, you know, how it had come about that they've been able to explain the population of the Ryoko Islands yeah. um, uh, other than by accident. And that is that they tested the currents around here, which had previously been presumed that people had drifted along on. But the currents uh, and these people were had come from Taiwan, uh, genealogical uh, connection, the DNA co connection is from that side is that the currents from Taiwan do not take you to the islands at all, never um, would have, here's the thing though they did test it out um, sailing, trying to go from Taiwan, I think first to J Japan, even then it doesn't work mm. but in 2018 and a couple of times I think in 2018 a couple of uh, some people set out on reed boats to try and prove that's how they got there and failed in <laughs> the 21st century twice. <laughs> you know, and yeah. uh, 30,000 years ago, they were saying, well, no problem. Let's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, eventually, they did succeed in a, 
in a dugout, a large dugout, to uh, yeah. actually sail from ta- Taiwan to uh, uh, yeah. the Ryoko uh, Islands. It's, it's amazing because they they tried it from the north, they tried it from the south. Didn't matter what yeah. they did, they couldn't get there by accident. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and but but they had such a struggle now, only a couple yeah. of years ago, and mm. you think, well, how would you set off? 30,000, 35,000 years ago. How would you set off then? Do you know what I'm really intrigued about with this kind of research, though? Um, go, go for and, it. And yeah. it's a bit like, uh, this is a momentary digression, but it, it reminds me of when we were talking um, with uh, Bruce Bradley. And yeah. Bruce, Bruce said that it's amazing how many people write papers on hunting in prehistory when they've never even been out and shot a rabbit. And, <laughs> uh, and, and that in itself is so telling... For all sorts of things. So you've got these these academics, and I don't mean any disrespect with that, but you've got these academics who they're writing a paper and doing some research on how you can do this by boat. So they've gone in a they've gone on a raft and whatever. Did they? They may well have done. I don't know. But did they go to some real hardened trawlermen, you know, and say we're trying to do this? What tips can you give us? Um, because I'm sure, you know, it's yeah. a bit like when they did the research uh, back when they were looking at travelling from Orkney to mainland Scotland. Yes. And, uh, and you know, you can, you can see it. It doesn't look that far away. You can see the land on the other side. That's no problem. We'll go there. And yet the currents are so strong that uh, you, you might row in that direction, but that's not the way you're going to go. It's horrific. Um, yeah. And uh, and it it makes me wonder the same thing that if you had people who really had a solid knowledge and understanding of uh, traveling on the water, yeah, you know how much of a difference does that make? I mean, I I've never been a sailor. I've always liked a motor behind my boat. <laughs> um, but but when you see well, you, you know you talk to people who sail. And their yeah. understanding of of just how you use the wind uh, yeah. with the water. Hmm. It's a different space entirely. And I'm not suggesting that these people had sails. They might have done. But, um, but the point is that if you understand how the tides and hmm. the weather conditions work together, which if you're an academic just studying prehistory, you might not. Um, hmm. I might be being very unfair to somebody. I don't know, but <laughs> do you know what I, I mean? I do know what you mean. Anyway, I think we should head towards wrapping up here, and I think you'll appreciate um, that. Yes, we have opened a bit of a can of worms, and a whole area. Uh, we've just touched on the briefest of uh, facts and 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 covered very, very lightly, you know, what is known about where people were and the DNA connections and, and which people came from where and how the Poly- Polynesia itself got populated in the first place. You know, oh, Australia, how that, the, the population, the populating of Australia uh, m- means that they must have been sailing across the seas 50,000 years ago. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So, you know, that's just something to look into. We, we, I don't think we've got time here to look into that further. But I just wanted to mention, because it's crucial in a way, uh, and that is the fact that uh, we have so few boats from prehistory. 
that are known of, that have been mm. found. Um, they literally, in prehistory, you know, to, to cover the areas we've been talking about, there are about five, literally a handful, and the first one being from the Netherlands, uh, the, is it the Nessa, Nessa um, uh, dugout canoe, 10,000 years old, okay? Uh, to look at, it's tiny. I wouldn't set out across a, a 20 yards of bog in that. Mm. you know. But nevertheless, that is the oldest boat we have, 10,000 years old. Uh, the, the next one is fairly central from, from Africa, would you believe? So that's still, we're still land-bound. Uh, the next one is from Asia, again, uh, land-bound. Then the next one, we're talking about those previous ones at about 6,000 BC. And you don't get any boats in the archaeological record until you get to the Khufu ship. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. a little bit Two, different. 2,500 years BC. And it wouldn't look out of place in, you know, the Bay of Monaco, probably. <laughs> you know, You'd well, certainly would, be happy but... to be seen on it, yeah. <laughs> You have to be seen yeah. on it. So yeah. this magnificent timber, exquisite craft didn't just jump out of nowhere at 2500 BC. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it may not have been spe spectacularly seaworthy. We, uh, the thinking is that it was constructed spe especially for uh, Khufu a coronation or, or something, and it was buried mm. alongside the pyramid. But even so, it's a work of art. And uh, and there mm. it is, it's as if it, yeah. as if there was no, there are no progenitors to it whatsoever in the archaeological mm. record. Do you know that there's another aspect that I find really intriguing? This is not so much ocean-going travel as just the evidence that people were uh, were on the water with that degree of skill. So, for example, yeah. there's a, um, they, they've done some excavations on East Timor uh, in a, a cave there, and they, they found... So this is going back 42,000 years, and within the, uh, the remains that they've found there, they've found um, bones of and teeth of, uh, of, of fish like tuna and shark. Now, the thing is that tuna and shark... Are deep water oh, uh, fish, yeah, yeah, yeah. which means that these people were catching them to eat by mm. going out to sea to catch them. They can't have been doing yeah. it from the shore, um, and uh, and so that you know, if you think, well, d if they were doing that, you know, if that was a staple, and they were going out and catching shark and tuna, mm. just as you know, as a regular thing. That means that they were capable. I mean, imagine trying to land a shark on a dugout canoe. What are you doing? No. I... Which kind of implies that, well, what were they using then? They probably weren't using a dugout canoe because a shark would just tow you out to sea, wouldn't it? Uh, um, yeah, unless you absolutely know what you're doing yeah. and uh, hold the secrets of the sea in your head. And I yeah. think... That is something we probably underestimate, you know, the, the mm. skills, the seamanship. And uh, if we've done one thing, at least, at least we've probably pointed to the fact that seafaring is absolutely fundamental to human existence and the, you know, existence of the human species, you know, as a, 
occup as the occupying creature of uh, uh, of the globe as we know it. Yes, and yes. Uh, that's the kind of sort of uh, phrase with which we sort of slowly grind to an end, having opened up all these talking points mm -hmm. <laughs> and avenues of inquiry, um, uh, that we have to sort of bring it to a close with the, those kind of sentiments, I, I, mm. I think. Um, if we've shifted, you know, a, a way of looking at uh, people in prehistory, you know, uh, we always think of them as in terms of being land-bound, but obviously they weren't. Mm. And no, there indeed. must have been knowledge and skill and something deep-seated in ancient knowledge, if I can put it, you know, with, <laughs> I hate to use that terminology, but there you go. It's probably mm. stuff that so many of us have forgotten. And I think with that, on that we note. will draw a line and move on to... The next bit. I think we probably should. Terrific. All of which brings us into doing a screeching handbrake turn to take us into the last bit of this uh, Prehistory Guys podcast for February 2021. It is time. It is time. It is time for. It is time for. Stonehead of Stonehead of Can you? Stonehead of the month. Stonehead of the month. Stonehead of the month. Never gets tired for me. Said that without moving my lips. Dear, who is Stonehead of the month? Stonehead of the month. This month, we have unashamedly awarded it to Amanda Hart at the Carinian Museum because. We, we are genuinely, we're just so blown away with, uh, uh, with uh, what Amanda achieved. And I know we, we said all this when we interviewed her, and you, uh, you may well have heard, um, heard that interview. It's just, uh, yeah. we chatted with Amanda uh, on more than one occasion uh, around the time that we were doing the interview. And the thing is that we were in you know, pandemic lockdown, and she was in the museum on her own, just ploughing away single-handed. Um, and, yeah, she is just such a, such a, a worthy um, stonehead of the month. I hope she takes it as, as a compliment. It's uh... <laughs> Yeah, and also um, we think it's a good thing to advertise the fact of the Crinium Museum and the fact that it, you know, it has undergone this metamorphosis mm. uh, from... Well, not from because it's known as you know celebrating the Romanness of Sirencester mm. and the fantastic uh, uh, you know mosaics and other artifacts from uh, the Roman period in Sirencester, but she's uh, added you know which is how we came across in the first place is adding on this project called from um, Stone Age to Carinium. Um, and there's a whole new gallery in the museum devoted to the prehistory of the Cotswolds, mm. which is, don't need to tell you, um, quite extensive. Mm. Immense, yes. Um, so, and also, not only that, she's brought the focus you know, into prehistory, 
but also into archaeology itself. She's been at pains mm. to make sure that the prehistoric galleries not only show you, you know, not only the taxonomy and the chronology of, of uh, the, the remains that uh, they have there, um, but also to introduce uh, people to the process of archaeology itself so that the, um, the link between the, 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 the articles that you see on display in the museum behind glass walls is shown in the context of the work that goes behind getting it to that mm. place in, you know, uh, in the exhibition uh, and the interpretation. Mm. It's also worth mentioning that Corinium Museum uh, is the um, uh, main gathering place. I don't know what's the right word it's the, for it's the whole the main of repository the for all, uh, all repository. The that's the word yeah. archaeology. Yeah, which is uh, yeah, which that in itself. I mean, it's 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 just huge. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, not least of which because, of course, you've got the Cotswold Seven Cotswold Long yeah. Barrows, you know, proliferating. Uh, yeah, there yeah. and all sorts of uh, other fascinating things. Mm. I think the Beaker burial exhibit there. That's I'm just dying to see that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? I have to say, whilst it, it might come as a surprise from a prehistorian, but the Roman mosaics, good grief, they're just yeah. astounding. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, and the museum itself is a thing itself. Mm. Uh, I mean, it looks beautiful. I haven't been there for a long, 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 long time. Um, but as I say, it's, well, it, it's it, undergone a transformation. It's a, a treat that I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I have yet to experience. I've only seen the uh, the photographs yeah. and films um, of it, but it's just yeah. it's quite beautiful what they've done. And unfortunately, right at this moment, they're, I think they're suffering under lockdown. Mm. So. I don't think it's actually open, but, you know, just put it on your bucket mm. list. That's what we're saying. Mm. Uh, and the powerhouse behind this, six years of, of development and ups and downs and roller coaster of, you know, funding and all the rest of it, the powerhouse behind this is Amanda Hart, and that is why she is our Stonehead of the Month. I'm going to give her an extra round of Yay. applause. I think we've done our duty. We have. Well done, Amanda. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, moving mm -hmm. on. Um, if you're new to uh, our, our podcast, we always finish up with a bit of whimsy. You um, little Something a little bit light-hearted light around prehistoric archaeology to uh, finish off with. So, um, what have you got to see us out? Uh, I tell you, this is, it's from the Monastery Museum on San Lazaro degli Armani. I've never heard of it before. Well it's a tiny <laughs> island on the edge of the Venetian lagoon. Um, oh, right. Okay. And apparently this monastery, they have a lovely collection of artefacts. And this actually goes back to 2017 when a young archaeology student by the name of Vittoria dal Armelina uh, from Cafoscara University of Venice, uh, she'd gone to visit the monastery. It was nothing to do with work or her mm -hmm. research or anything else. It was just a jolly right. day out. Well, uh, she was she was looking at their medieval collection, and within the medieval collection was a rather beautiful sword, which she recognised immediately 
because she'd only recently written a thesis on high-status grave goods. And this sword was very clearly <laughs> Bronze Age. And it turns out to be one of the oldest known examples anywhere in the world. Um, it's actually a 5,000-year-old sword from Anatolia. And uh, so, it's, yeah, I know, it just all goes to show that it's not always the experts who can point you in the right direction. <laughs> it takes a student. No, right. It takes a student to rock up yeah, and well, say, no, you got that wrong. Well, by that, uh, we could say there's hope for us. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah you never know. No, you never know. But that is quite remarkable, and hats off to her, for goodness sakes, you know. For... Absolutely, because, I mean, to be fair, most people will walk around a museum and pretty much accept, you know, yeah. the labels and the categories that have been uh, that have been written down. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, absolutely, hats off to her. Very good. But uh, medieval to 5,000 years old, yeah, that's a quite gap. a stretch. Yeah. yeah. And it points up the thing that... Things didn't develop that much for quite a long time. In terms, you know, of... that's a that's a very very good point, isn't yeah. it? I, I think that the only significant difference between Bronze Age going into Iron Age swords in comparison with more recent history is the length of it. I mean, basically, yeah, yeah. difference between a dagger and a sword. You know, is if it's over twelve inches long, it's a sword. Pretty, you know, you look at Roman swords, short. Uh, Bronze Age swords, short, but uh, it's only when you get into. It, I suppose it's a different style of fighting, isn't it? But um, yeah, so yeah. modern, more modern swords are significant. And longer. just another little bit of uh, perspective here: if this is a five thousand year old sword from Anatolia, we're talking mm. about a sophisticated bit of metalwork uh, that was being made five hundred years before Stonehenge was put up. Yes. In uh, in broad terms, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and 500 years before we really get um, metalwork appearing in um, in Britain. Yes. Hey-ho. There you go. Hey-ho. Not that we were behind the times, but um, a little bit of a perspective. Yes. Yes, we were busy doing other things, let's put it that way. Yeah. So uh, we always <laughs> like to uh, bring perspective. We hope we've brought loads of perspective to uh, prehistoric archaeology in um, this podcast and we'll continue to do so. That's all I've got to say for this time. What about you, Rupert? No, that's all I've got to say. Yeah. It's been fun. It's been fun, as it always is. Glad to be back in the saddle after a bit of a break, as far as the podcast mm -hmm. is concerned. I uh, mm -hmm. hope you enjoyed that, folks. Thanks for listening. If you're on YouTube, thanks for watching. And, uh, yeah, till the next time. See you next time, folks. Thank you so much for listening. And just to finish off, if you haven't already done so, um, please check out our YouTube channel where there's loads more stuff. Do a search for The Prehistory Guys on YouTube. And if you want to have a look at even more stuff, do consider supporting us via our Patreon crowdfunding page. You'll find that at patreon.com forward slash The Prehistory Guys. Thanks again. Bye-bye. <laughs>